0: Hello and welcome to this episode of FireDev, a fireside chat with people in the industry. Today my guest is Helen Scott. How are you, Helen?
1: I'm really good, thank you. How are you doing?
0: I'm good, I'm good. Busy day, but you know... Made it onto the podcast, you know, for for the audience, uh, uh, you know, I was a little late, not that it actually matters for the audience because it's pre-recorded, but I was a little late, uh, you know, due to prior meetings, but made it in the end, and now we're here with Helen. So, you know, do you want to introduce yourself and, you know, what you do, because you work at JetBrains, and, you know, what you do there?
1: Sure. Uh, So, um, as you've already said, my name is Helen Scott. I'm a developer advocate at JetBrains. Uh, in terms of what I do there, I always try and come up with a good answer to this question and I pretty much fail every time. Uh, no no week is the same. No day is the same. I do lots of things, including providing product feedback, uh, liaising with developers, trying out the product, of course, uh, lots of EAPs and dog fooding, creating content, going to conferences and and I love it. I've been doing it nearly three years now. So, in a a nutshell, a little bit of everything.
0: Okay. So, a developer advocate, that's probably a role that many, you know, (laughs) many people in the audience haven't heard of. You know, they've heard of programmers, they've heard of designers, they might have heard of, you you know, UI and UX designers, or, you know, platform engineers, for example. But a developer advocate, they generally don't hear of. Like, how do you go about getting into that field and more like obviously you've explained what you do within that field but like what's like if you was to see a posting for a job as a developer advocate what would it actually say you know your day-to-day responsibilities and requirements would be
1: it's a great question and i'm gonna go with the cop-out answer of it depends because it really does uh, in my experience, a lot of, and it's it's not just in developer advocacy, it's in a lot of uh, roles within our industry. They mean different things in different places. Uh, product owner, for example, can mean different things in different places. Developer advocate can mean different things in different places, but fundamentally most most developer advocates or developer advocates roles, at least the ones that I've seen, um, I've only ever done it in one place, of course, but the roles that I've seen are usually a mix of working with the community in whatever form that can, that may take. So that may take the form of conferences, blog posts, video creation, all, all the socials. Um, also, you know, it doesn't have to come through a social media channel. It can be any channel, working with the community. It's that combined with lots of product feedback. So um we're something we're very big on at JetBrains is dog fooding. So trying out our stuff before it goes out there and saying this works, this doesn't work, this is going to be a problem, the community want this and being that point of liaison as well. And then so yeah, what have I covered? I've covered uh working with the community, I've covered working with the product and then your own ideas as well right sprinkling those throughout because you have experience you have ideas you you hear kind of noise on the grapevine what people are looking for what people want and you can feed all that back in because ultimately our job is to help developers right that's that's our kind of bread and butter is if we can find a way to to help developers do what they do and be even more awesome than they already are, then that's great advocacy.
0: Okay. So, you know, you've got a, a computer science degree, a programming degree. How important is a, you know, programming typical developer background to being a developer advocate?
1: Oh, developer advocates come from all walks of life. <laughs> they really do. And I think it's wonderful because developers come from all walks of life and if you're going to advocate for developers then i think it's really important that you 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 have representation from all the different walks of life that they come from as well so you know my computer science degree was was very helpful it gave me a solid grounding in a bunch of um you know principles that i still use today you know let's call out algorithms who doesn't love a good algorithm but it's not the only route into development. Of course it's not. There's, you know, you can teach yourself, it's awesome. There's boot camps, there's apprenticeships, there's degrees, there's everything in between. Um, and they're all perfectly valid and fantastic ways to, you know, become a developer, uh, become a developer i Also, you know, my background's largely in technical writing, which is more skewed on the content creation side of things but it's still working with developers and it's still kind of advocating for developers it's just advocating in in a different way so in terms of your question uh is a, is a degree important no not in my opinion uh, mine's great but you know that we all have different um desires and come from you know, very different areas so i think that is that's phenomenal because it brings a real diversification into the industry and developer advocacy is no different in that respect. So, yeah.
0: Okay. Uh, you you touched on a good point that in the modern world, there's so many ways of, let's say if you was to become a normal programmer developer, you know, you can obviously go down the university degree route. You can, you know, there's YouTube, there's boot camps, there's crash courses, there's books as well. And there's, you know, podcasts you know can you know aid that i i I don't think they're really a substitute to a programming book at least not right now or you know some sort of youtube course but they can you know you know they can definitely aid your journey so yeah i agree that a computer science degree isn't crucial whether that's being a developer advocate or a developer in general but what about having a technical programming developer background for being a developer advocate?
1: Um, you will find that most developer advocates do have that in some form, myself included. Um That said, I I don't think e I wouldn't I wouldn't say that's even a blocker in itself. You know, developer advocates really do come from all walks of life. And because of the the range of the job, that does support uh being able to Come in from really quite a unique angle, so is it is it a hard requirement? I would say it's a usual requirement. I wouldn't like to say it's a hard requirement because I think we can all bring different strengths, and you know when you've got a role as varied as advocacy, there are a lot of different threads to that you know content creation, working with developers. Some people are amazing at learning very quickly to you know whatever they need to learn. To the right level to the to the right depth and the right amount and then being able to take that information with you know very little perhaps developer experience in quotes and take that information and use it to help other developers in a similar situation some people are very gifted in that respect and they can do that whereas other people you know have i don't know let's say at the other end of spectrum 15 20 years experience uh, coding and they come to developer advocacy with that wealth of experience, which gives them a unique and different angle. So, yeah, it it really is very varied.
0: Okay, well, one thing I'm interested to hear about is where in the hierarchy does a developer advocate's salary, you know, sit? Because let's say if you got regular developers within there, you know, you got juniors, mid, senior, lead, all of that. Above that, generally speaking, is, you know, the management level. Above that will be, you know, the the C-suite, the CEO, CEOs, etc. And potentially above that, depending on the size of the company and the type of company, will be like, you know, board, you know huge board members. Where is a developer advocate sitting in terms of salary, generally speaking?
1: I would say the best way to find that information out is to check out the surveys that the tech industry put out. So the two that immediately come to mind are the Stack Overflow and the JetBrains Ecosystem Survey. Both of those, uh, I would say, would be useful sources of information, as well as just the general, it sounds a bit, you know, cliche to say Google it, um, but my experience in this area won't be that useful for the listeners because I am one. So I would say, um, yeah, have a look at at surveys because, again, it's going to vary quite wildly in different companies. So that would be my advice there.
0: Yeah, okay. I think that's fair enough. And as a developer advocate, how do you bridge the gap between the technical side? So, you know, the developers, for example, and the non-technical side, you know, end users, stakeholders, that sort of stuff. Because you do have the advantage of, having the technical background, but like, how do you yeah. personally bridge the gap between the two?
1: Um, the good news is you don't really have to because as a developer advocate, you're working with developers internally and you're working with developers externally. Um, I, I try not to put, you know, I try not to use the boxes, technical and non-technical, because I think fundamentally everybody is on a range somewhere of the skills that they possess and I think if we start saying technical and non-technical we can potentially alienate people. Um, So for me it's a case of everybody's an individual and understanding where they are at on their journey, what skills they have, what skills they're trying to learn and what their struggles are as well. So when it comes to bridging the gap it's just a case of understanding what their needs are needs are and understanding what the needs of their users are understanding their workflows understanding if they've got any struggles can you know can you help and empowering them that way rather than trying to um yeah bridge a gap so to speak
0: okay fair enough so JetBrains, you know it's a huge company they've got a lot of products so which particular products have you worked on and do you work on as a developer advocate, or is it more literally just everything that JetBrains does? <laughs>
1: it's not everything, there's not enough hours in the day. I know. It, it, um...
0: <laughs> when you have a look, like JetBrains is one of those companies that I, I feel like non technical people that aren't in the industry at all, you know, unlikely to have heard of, and then people that are within the industry programmers or you know the ones that interact with programs like recruiters designers they will have probably heard of you know one or two products but when you look there's just so many things you know they do
1: yeah i mean for for me i um i spent a couple of years focusing on IntelliJ idea i've recently started focusing on python because i i've been interested in python for quite a while now and i wanted to learn some uh i mean one of the one of the great things that I think, well, many great things, but uh, about the JetBrains products is we have the, the platform, which is why uh, if you've been using say, IntelliJ IDEA, you can use PyCharm because the same, it's the same uh, interface. It's the same shortcuts, you know, within reason one is Java and one is Python, but it's the same base functionality in that respect. So it makes it lowers the, the barriers between moving between different IDEs in that for that way, even though it's with different technology, a lot of the functionality will be familiar to developers if they, you know, switch between our IDEs. So yeah, does that answer your question?
0: So can you share an example of a project that you worked on, but you were you know you wasn't one hundred percent sure how to, you know, interact with the developers or advocate for it and you know how did you overcome that um
1: i think so a lot of our work that we do as developer advocates is quite um it's not really big bang it's more of a it's more of a slow burn so we generally iterate over weeks and months when it comes to new things uh i've already mentioned dog fooding that's something that we we do for a new feature or a way of working um and First and foremost, it's just a case of, like I've already said, seeking to understand, you know, understand what the user needs to do, what their workflow might be, being that conduit um, in terms of advocating. And there's loads of little examples, but, you know, it is, it's just a case of listening, taking that information back and trying to do something helpful with it. That's going to empower the developer. It's, it's. Most developer advocacy work isn't Big Bang. It's more of a, an ongoing thread that every day we just strive to to do better and to meet the needs of our users.
0: Okay. So, you know, in this pursuit, you know, when you're getting feedback, let's say from external developers, for example, or even internal developers, how do you use that feedback to help shape the jetbrain products?
1: How do we use it? We, we listen to it first and foremost, and, you know, we, we take it back to the product teams, we discuss, we find out more information and then we iterate. That's what it's all about. It's not just a case of putting something out there and then ignoring it's a case of dog feeding it internally, initially seeing what works, what doesn't, then it goes through a series of uh, EAP, so early access programs to find out, you know, does it work? have we hit the mark have we not hit the mark and getting the feedback that way so it's just a case of constant iteration
0: so how do you stay updated you know with the latest industry trends technologies you know languages you know etc because obviously as part of your job i'm sure it's important for you to know what's coming up you know what other companies yeah. are doing etc
1: um it's a challenge it's always a challenge. Um, I think this is a challenge at any job, whether you're a developer advocate, a developer or a product owner, anything, um, because your time always gets super squeezed and it's impossible to keep up with every single, you know, trend or new thing. It's just it's just not feasible. There aren't enough hours in the day. Um, there are a few techniques that I use depending on how I feel. Um, I prefer reading to watching videos but I know many of your listeners will probably prefer videos. Yeah. But it's just finding a medium that works for you and fitting that around your schedule and life in general. You know, maybe there's a little bit of downtime in the afternoon kind of if you don't work with um with America anyway there might be a little bit of downtime in the afternoon. Maybe you can schedule just half an hour then to read a blog or watch a video but it is hard because you're often dodging meetings and other commitments and deadlines so it's finding a medium that works for you whether that's um that's videos blog posts or something else trying to carve out some time in your schedule that you know won't be overwritten or overscheduled and then you know making the time because time is all we have and we have to we really have to make that time um, to stay to stay on top and also you know, not go too deep into the rabbit hole unless it is required for our job. And for a lot of developers, it will be. You know, we, we do have to go deep into the rabbit hole, but not always. Um, conferences as well, if you can get to attend conferences, they're a great way of finding out kind of what's, what's hot, what's coming and getting a, you know, maybe there's a new, I don't know, front end framework for JavaScript. And... You need just a quick TLDR. A conference can be a really nice way of achieving that, for example.
0: Okay. And as a developer advocate, like how do you measure success? Because you know, as a programmer, you know ideally when you have like a, a work item, you have acceptance criteria, and you can you know measure it against that. But what does a developer advocate measure their success by?
1: Um, this is a time-honored question. Uh, there are various metrics. Of course there are, but I, for me, I think you need to take quite a holistic viewpoint and I'll tell you why it's because, you know, say you put a blog post out there and you look at it and you say, great, that blog post got 2000 more views than this other blog post. But what does that really mean? Does that mean that the blog post that you wrote was better than the other blog post? Does it mean that, you posted on a monday whereas the other blog post was posted on a saturday and nobody reads technical blog blog posts on a saturday does it mean that what you wrote about was more interesting than the other blog post you don't know all you can do is make a hypothesis that you can subsequently test or many hypotheses that you can subsequently test so metrics are great and powerful but i think they need to be used in conjunction with Meaningful hypotheses and tested. Um, I'm not saying don't measure absolutely do measure. I'm just saying measure and don't get uh, caught up in What you think might be the reason for something success or equally something's, you know, something's failed failed You might put a video out and it gets Several well, let's say it gets hundred views and most videos on the channel get 30,000 views and you think well, why is that video done so badly again? You don't you don't know But you can measure it, you can form a hypothesis and then just know why you're doing something as well. You know, that that I think is helpful for measuring success, because if you know why you're doing it, say there's a particular pain point in the product. If you know why you're doing it and you can then measure the success that can help to form a picture that you can then use to say, okay, this worked, this didn't work. And this might be the reason Um, there is no. There's no magic um, answer to this one, in my opinion. I think measuring is very, very difficult.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's fair enough. So how important is storytelling, you know, in your role as a developer advocate? And, you know, how do you use it effectively?
1: Well, humans thrive on stories. (laughs) They really do thrive on stories. Um, We... You know, we're raised on on bedtime stories, and our brains really do light up when you know when we when we hear a story and developer advocacy and any content creation. You know, this side of developer advocacy is no different. So, I think it's extremely important. And if you if you can tell a story and your audience, whether that's a video, blog post, or whatever, your audience can identify with that story and they can they can partake in it. Then they are far more likely to, um, to to engage, to enjoy it, to learn from it, to stick around. Um, you know, there is there is an element sometimes that in certainly developer advocacy you might produce more of a marketing type video. That uh, again, this is everywhere on the developer advocacy spectrum. It's it's a big range. Um, but if it's more marketing video, then maybe there wouldn't be so much story. It might just be bang, 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 feature, feature, feature. But normally for a developer advocacy video where you are imparting knowledge or showing the developer community how to do something that you believe will help them, then telling them a story, making it cohesive, making it fun, adding a bit of infotainment can be really valuable because you know th- this industry moves crazy fast and you have to respect people's time so you know if a developer has carved out half an hour on that Wednesday afternoon to you know check out the latest trends and do their learning then you need to be aware of that and cognizant of their time and their gift to you and that they're giving you their time so it's it's a case of tell them a story make it informative and See you know what they can then go and do with it, because the bottom line is you're there to empower them, you're not there to produce an amazing video with all the you know with all the um with all the the whistles you're just there to tell them a story and empower them to be awesome at their job, so I would say it's very important humans thrive on stories,
0: mean yeah, I totally agree you know having a good story can you know you know take you from shutting out you know just zoning out after a minute or two to just listening for hours and hours so having yeah. some good you know you know why how you know what's up hap- you know instead of just what's happening uh you know having some sort of story to you know really engage you you know can really help
1: yeah definitely
0: so can you share any experiences where you had to pitch you know some sort of unconventional idea let's say based on feedback and how did you you know get your stakeholders to you know buy in on you know you know the idea
1: um so unconventional idea the the one that comes to mind first is not from developer advocacy but i think it's relevant um it's from the technical writing world uh the unconventional idea was when i was um i was working as a developer uh, well, uh, in a developer team covering multiple developer teams that all came together produ- to produce one product. And the feedback that we kept getting was that the the sales team specifically did not know what was coming from development. So that kind of to them, development was a black box. They didn't really, they couldn't see what was coming. Um, and the unconventional idea that I had and I, yeah, in the end managed to implement was, just a little web server. It was that simple. And what I said to them was, I will spin you up a little web server, and it will be internal only. And every night, I will publish the documentation that I am writing to that server. Here is the IP address, help yourself. And I said 70% of it will be correct, and 30% of it will not be correct. It will have errors, it will have typos, it will be clumsily written but it will be there and you'll be able to see what is coming up at a level in the product that wasn't available in the kind of high level here's what we're going to release in the next iteration of the product. And there was a lot of kind of um not a lot a little bit of pushback to the idea because you know they they felt like that wouldn't solve it and how would you know how would they know which 70% was correct and which 30% wasn't? I said well, you know, respectfully this is the best that i can offer and the whole goal here was to make the development team a little less of a black box to other areas of the business and i i implemented the web server and i did what i'd said i was going to do i published there every um every evening and of course some of the stuff was incorrect because what goes into a release bends and flexes as you know we all know depending on what kind of you know way of working you're using but ultimately everything that was committed to a release I don't know two months before the release rarely makes it for whatever reason so you know some features did get cut but the sales team absolutely loved it because they could see what was coming they had an inkling when they were speaking to their customers of whether or not something was going to be added to the product or changed or fixed and it it made everybody really really happy in the end so that was a big success for me
0: okay so you know when you get feedback, like feedback's not always going to be either positive or, you know, just something that you can easily not ignore and not act on, but not take, you know, personally. Like how do you handle negative feedback, you know, or criticism from the developer community?
1: Same way you handle any feedback. I mean, feedback is, is a gift. You know, it's somebody, it's somebody saying, this isn't working for me. You know what what can you do? And ultimately, if somebody's giving you negative feedback, there's a really good chance that they're frustrated, that something something hasn't worked, you know, no product is perfect, something hasn't worked. So you can then use that, you can open the channels of communication and learn more. You know we, we all want to be heard. We want to be listened to, we want to be understood. That's a very human need. So, you know, if you can seek to understand their point of view, their challenges, acknowledge the pain point, you know, if because regardless of whether it exists or whether they're doing something or they're trying to do something that isn't in the product or they're it is in the product but they don't know how to do it, the fact is that it's a pain point for them right there and then. So acknowledge it and then do your level best to fix it for them. So it's yeah, it really is seeking to understand because we are all human and we all want to be heard.
0: I think that's fair enough. So can you talk about a recent initiative or project that you worked on that you're particularly proud of?
1: Oh, um, I would say recently. What are we defining as recently? Um, I would say the the JetBrains Guide specifically the IntelliJ idea guide. So, uh, we have a series of guides. Um, we have one per product at the moment, but we're, we're looking at making some changes there, but the IntelliJ idea guide was, was my project. So that's something that I created and I added a load of content to, and, you know, going back to your question about how do you measure success? You you measure it, but measurements only give you part of the story. And I can make a hypothesis from the number of views that I see it gets that developers are finding it useful. Um, there was one mortifying moment a few months ago where I Googled something because I'd forgotten how to do it. And then I saw a video from myself on the IntelliJ idea guide. So um, for me, that was a big success because I took it from nothing to... Uh, what I believe and hypothesize is a helpful repository of tips and tricks for IntelliJ IDEA. And I still, you know, I add to it, I update it, I, um, yeah, add new tutorials to it as and when I've got the time. So that's something I am really proud of is that project.
0: So documentation, you know, like the you know the guide stuff, is something I feel like a lot of developers, a lot of companies, you know, do you know fall flat on their face on. They you know focus so much on the product, the service, and it, again, it, it, you know, it's like commenting code as well. Like it's one of those things that it's almost like an afterthought. like what advice would you give or tips and tricks? to not only create good documentation, but to do it in a way that, you know, you're doing it as you're going along or that, you you know, you're making sure that it's getting done instead of having, let's say, 20 new code files created, components, you know, for example, um, but they're not documented yet?
1: Um, Good question. I think, well, there are lots of answers to this question. (laughs) um i would say definitely there are some guiding principles that you can use um firstly everyone can write um doesn't matter you know what your your team structure is everybody can write and whatever form that writing takes can be helpful uh if you're if you answer the question from a technical writer point of view i would give advice such as be be integrated into the team as much as you can be. Um, the technical writer time will always get squeezed. So be be in there, understand people. You know, get get the information out of the developers' heads because the last person a developer probably wants to see twelve hours before the release is the technical writer asking them about a feature. So you know go to the go to the stand ups, find out find out how the um how the the release is looking, get download the nightly builds or you know whatever if you've got continuous integration, great you know get on there, start using the product, test it you know you're a tester as much as anything else when you're doing documentation, so test it, click things, break things, understand how it works, and then you know get it documented even if it changes you've got something written down and something is a lot better than nothing um, in terms of If you're not coming at it from a technical writer point of view, I would say try different ways, you know, try different ways of working. Yes, everybody can write. Not everybody likes to write. Maybe there's some people in the team who prefer writing over other people in the team. Maybe they'd like to take a little bit of a lead in terms of creating the documentation. Maybe the team want to create the documentation. Maybe they want to use a wiki. this podcast would not be long enough to go into the pros and cons of a wiki, but for example, that's one option. Um, Maybe they are moving more towards uh, a model where all the documentation will be uh, in the code base and stored alongside the code. Again, there's a whole bunch of um, pros and cons and ways of working associated with that one. But I would say everyone can write. Some people like writing more than others. Some people really like it like myself, um, little and often, try things out. And the, the fun thing about technical writing and documentation in general is you rarely get feedback on it unless it's wrong. If it's wrong, you'll know about it. <laughs> but if it's not wrong, yeah, there's a, I always kind of fall back on a, a kind of saying that I've acquired over the years of technical writing is that if a user is reading your documentation, they are probably or at least potentially maybe already annoyed because you know when you you get a new phone or you get a new tv and you have to tune it for channels that's probably showing my age but you know you get something new you don't tend to pick up the user guide and read it you put it on the kitchen table and then you put it in the recycling box most people don't you know start thumbing through those pages and that's absolutely fine. So if they have picked up that manual or you know opened the documentation page or whatever there's a good chance they don't know how to do something and they might need a bit of help. So it's being aware of that as well when you're when you're creating the documentation because again it goes back to the point of we're all human and sometimes we have frustrations and documentation is an area that we often get funneled to when we have those frustrations.
0: Okay. I mean I know what you mean, uh, so some of the time most of the times I've gone to documentation, whether that is like a manual like you're saying for a product or you know an online guide is because you know something is wrong and especially if you know you've got someone coming to your documentation but they're not a newbie, you know, if they've been doing it for f- multiple years and they're coming to your documentation, they're probably not going to be, you know, like you said, that happy because, you know, they're trying to figure something out. Uh, and especially if they're coming to your documentation, that's, you know, for a new version of something that they already use. Cause you know, cause that's the worst thing is like when you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, how to use, you know, language or a framework, for example, it's all going well gets updated and, and everything just starts breaking. Then you're having to go to documentation. You know, uh, you know, as an individual, it kind of makes you doubt yourself. It's just like you know, I knew how to do it before. Why don't I know now? And you know, yeah. they don't want to be going to the documentation, but they're you know having to. And the last thing, you know, people want to do is go to documentation, and then it be a task in itself to navigate the documentation and figure out which documentation I actually need. So, you know, keeping the documentation as simple, but also in depth as well to be able to aid, you know, the, you know, the person who's going through it. Cause the last thing you want is somebody to go on the documentation and, uh, you know, just get one line of code on there. But the reality is it requires nine other lines of code that the, reuter is assuming that you should just know like it's going to make the developer feel even worse about themselves
1: yeah um and you touched on an interesting point there um and developer anybody who reads documentation um but you touched on an inter- interesting point there about layering as well you know it's about giving the inf- giving the end user the right information at the right time to the right depth if you if you hit them with a 30 page um you know scrolling central of online help when all they wanted to do was know what one um one checkbox does then that can be equally frustrating so it's about it's about layering as well i think great documentation
0: oh yeah for sure like making it in such a way that you know you can access what you need to and it's there but you don't get overwhelmed by it that you don't think oh you know i need these 10 pages but in reality you only need two of the pages you are know, for the stage that you're at So, you know, having worked at JetBrain, you know, what drew you to, you know, JetBrain? what you like most about your job there?
1: Um, I like lots of things about my job. Um, What drew me was just the variation. I mean, that's something that I've, well, no, it's a combination of two things. It was the variation in the role and getting to work with such a huge range of people. I mean, that's something you, you do in technical writing on a much smaller scale because you get to work, We often get to work across multiple developer teams. So you get to know lots of different people and you get to do a variety of content. But for the developer advocacy role, you get to do even more of that. You know, you get to produce lots of different kinds of content and you get to work with just fantastic people, both internally and externally. So I was really... I was drawn by that I was also drawn by the variety that um you know variety in the workload it's not just it's not you know technical writing is in some ways it can be quite samey you know you are there to create release documentation and I loved the job, but I get to do much more variety as a developer advocate, which is really exciting um because as well there's a lot of autonomy developer needs are always changing, so you can align what you're doing with Uh, with the developers that you know you're serving effectively so yeah it would be it would be variation in the content you create and just getting to work with brilliant developers both internally and externally that's a huge plus for me
0: oh yeah for sure so you know just going back to you know when we were talking about you know like the guides you know the sort of stuff that jetbrains is working on and you know what sort of future trend, especially something like, you know, AI, chat, GPT, because, you know, I've been looking at that and, you know, what it can do in terms of creating documentation, you know, mm. obviously generating code and, you know, a bunch of other stuff as well. Like how is JetBrain but more just, you know, on a higher level, how do you see that, you know, being integrated into the industry within these sort of more established companies?
1: it's just the tip of the iceberg isn't it um so obviously we we can see ai coming down the pipeline of course we can everybody can uh we're about to release our ai assistant in our ides so we'll be targeting uh kind of an augmented intelligence again it's it's all about enhancing the developer productivity it's what we've been doing for 20 years or 20 plus years it's making them or empowering them to be awesome right that's that's kind of what it's all about so it's that augmented intelligence and really i, I see it as kind of a natural extension of of all the work that we've done to date. it's just going to be it's going to be more and it's going to keep evolving right we i think sometimes we get a little bit you know we get to a, a certain time or, or year and we think right we've really evolved and we're really modern and then next year it's all changed. Uh, it's all changed because this industry is so fast moving. It, it this is just the beginning. There's going to we're going to see more and more of these offerings and changes in the developer community as a whole as we you know as we go through the next the next weeks and months. I don't know how it will play out, but I'm I'm looking forward to the journey definitely.
0: Okay. So, you know, you just mentioned that, you know, JetBrains will be, you know, integrating some, you know, newer AI technologies and features to, you know, help the developer, you know, with suggestions, you know, writing code, that sort of stuff, you know, can you talk about that a bit more specifically? What sort of form that's gonna, you know, come Because I know, obviously, you know, Microsoft is doing their stuff, Google is doing their stuff. Plus, you know, personally, for me, you know, I'm actually using when it comes to a technical standpoint, Google less, yeah. you know, you know, when there's something I don't quite know and I would Google it. I'm using something like chat GPT because mm-hmm. instead of me Googling it, opening five links, figuring out which post on one of those, you know, stack overflow or what, whatever I'm opening, you know, trying to figure it out, I'll put in chat GPT. And usually gives me a decent answer with examples. And then I can chat to and be like, you know, can you expand on this? Or, can you know, can you explain this a bit more? Like, what sort of stuff, if any, like that is, you know, JetBrains bringing in?
1: I would say look, look out for the EAP posts because they are going to be, they will have landed, in fact, by the time this podcast goes out. So check those out. Have a look. Have a play, and as always, you know, give us your feedback because, like I said, this is this is just the beginning. We're going to see more and more of this in the coming months from the developer community as a whole. But yes, we are releasing an AI assistant in our in our IDEs very very soon. So I'm excited we'll pack for, that for
0: it! Thing. Yeah, because you know, to have something. Obviously, again, I don't know exactly what form is you know going to be taken in you know with the JetBrains stuff, but like just in general to have something that you know you maybe you can have a bit more of a conversation around and instead of just being like, you know, here's a suggestion, you know, you know, if you can be like, no, that's not quite what I want. This is what I'm actually trying to achieve, you know, to provide it some more, you know, context instead, because you know, like you know, like like saying if you have a squiggle under, you know, piece of code, if you have like an error or a warning, and then you you know, they might have a solution, but the solution you know, isn't quite what you want, but with a bit of context, the you know, probably the ideas currently that your brains has probably could provide you with a solution. It's just it's just giving you a pair of solution, you know, set of solutions that it thinks that you want, not really tame you know, as tailored to, you know, what your specific, you know, scenario is. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, i'm sure a lot of people have been listening to this episode and thinking you know what i would be interested in becoming a becoming a developer advocate because you know yourself you've done programming you know you have you've got a computer science degree you got that technical background but then you were a technical writer for what 15 plus years so you know a bit you know unconventional to gain a computer science degree most people think you know he's going to become a programmer junior mid senior you know maybe lead and maybe some sort of manager your path has been slightly you know different we know what advice would you give to someone that's listening and thinking i want to become a developer advocate
1: um i would say just have a check in with what your passions are you know if your if your passions are working with developers, creating content, um, maybe going to conferences, lots of communication, then may- maybe that is something that you'd like to explore. Um, and you can try it out, right? You can. There's lots of platforms out there that you can create content on. Uh, regard- some people like writing, some people like creating videos, some people are great at both, etc. Um you know you can try it out you can put some content out there and you can see if you like it and maybe you can attend some conferences and again see if you like it even take a take a venture into public speaking that's something that we do quite a little bit of in developer advocacy so i think there's lots of ways to kind of try it out and see if it is something that you'd like to do if it's something that excites you um that would be my my suggestion for how to find out if it is a career that would excite you is to have a go at the light version.
0: Okay, I mean, that's fair enough. Yeah, like, you know, dabble into it. It's it's like, you know, if you're becoming a programmer, it's one thing going from not being a programmer to, you know, getting a job full time to, you know, watching some videos, going on Code Academy, you know, yeah. if you're a web developer doing some HTML, CSS, JavaScript yourself, you know, that will, you know, give you you know, a good estimation of, is that even for you? Because, you know, there. I remember uh, at uni, uh, it's a bit silly when you actually think about it, but at uni, when I was in my first year, I did a computer games programming degree and there was a guy there and he dropped out after the first year. And the reason he dropped out was because he didn't like the programming side of it. Uh, uh, And he thought, again, stupidly, considering it's got programming in the name, but he thought there wouldn't be as much programming because he saw games. He thought there'd be a bit more of a focus on just making games in general and less on, you know, the coding side of things Uh, and the thing is he wanted to do a games design degree but when i you know when we started it was the three thousand three hundred odd you know pound per year for these you know the course fees after that literally uh, after one year of me starting uni he went up to the you know roughly what 10 grand it is now and because he technically was going to you know he was dropping out and wanted to start another degree he would have had to go on the higher one and he, he you know he made the calculation that it's just not worth it for him anymore if he had literally, because he clearly didn't do computer science at college, if he had just done a bit of work, you know, if, you know, a few hours, really, or even a weekend of trying out some programming, he would have realized, no, not for me. It's not my jam. I'll go and do the game design degree from the start uh, instead of getting the debt, not having the degree, and not being able to do the other degree because it's too expensive now.
1: It's a huge ecosystem out there. You know, that's what I would say. It's just because you have a computer science degree or you've taught yourself programming or you come through a boot camp or all of the other wonderful paths that you can take into development. There's lots of jobs out there that aren't pure programming if that's not your thing. For many people, it is their thing and they love it. And that's fantastic. But there's, if you don't, I would say the ecosystem is really really big and and that's great as well you know there's there's just so many jobs out there um all I would do is perhaps add a note of caution about when you have a full-time job and life and a limited number of hours in the day I would be cautious of spreading yourself too thin you know as you're trying out perhaps my suggestion of put a blog post out there or make a video or because it's um it can be quite hard to fit everything in without extra commitments so just be just be aware of your time and your mental health if you're going to take a uh if you're going to try out a different a different kind of career or side hustle
0: oh yeah for sure you know you you've got to try these things out you know dabble into different areas but you know like you said helen understand there's a limited amount of time especially when you do get older you do have commitments you know you got family you know you've got other responsibilities you've got work uh, you know and maybe other hobbies that you want to do as well so exactly. you know you've got to you know weigh everything up so you know that's all the you know questions that i generally have i've got a few more generic questions questions that i always ask at the end of my you know podcast and you know actually one that i have missed before i go to the generic one do you have any like personal you know projects or passions related to tech that you you know you would like to share that you're working on
1: uh i wrote a book (laughs) what's the
0: book called for the listeners
1: uh it's called getting to know intelligent Idea. Uh, I co-authored it with Trisha G, and that's available on both Leanpub, if you want the ebook, and Amazon, if you prefer um, a paper copy. So, yeah, was that, that of-
0: done like under JetBrain? Meaning, was that something as part of your job, or was that just because no. you enjoy it and you just did it as an extra thing?
1: The latter, just the latter. It yeah, okay. did it on our own time, um, and it's still, you know, just because it's it's done and it's published. We're still working on that. We're going to be updating it in the coming months, um, adding things as well, you know, new UI amongst other changes. So yeah, it's uh, that's been well, I think two years of a project that was so quite a long project. Um, I think my only other passion really is learning, which, again, is probably something I've, I should have said a lot earlier in the podcast about developer advocacy. You have to keep learning. Um, you, you do. So, <laughs> but that's that's no different to every other developer out there, I imagine. So, yeah, you have to keep learning. And that's, I think if that's a passion and something that you care about, it it makes the job a lot easier.
0: Oh Yeah, I think it's one of those lifelong journeys, even outside of anything to do with development uh, and even jobs in general. You know, life is lifelong learning exercise. And the more you open yourself up to learning, you know, the better your life can be instead of, you know, boxing yourselves off. Because it's very very easy for people to think, okay, I finished school, I finished college, or, you know, I finish uni if they go that high in terms of their education. I'll finish with, you know, education now. But in reality, the education that's probably going to enhance your life actually occurs outside of that and after that. That concludes this week's episode of Fire Dev. We had Helen Scott with us on the podcast. Thank you, Helen. And thank you for all the listeners out there. And I'll see you in next week's episode. Bye-bye.